You're listening to Two for Tea, a podcast produced in association with Ario Magazine. I'm your host, Iona Italia. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. For early access to episodes, support us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash tea. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Nicholas Christakis. Nicholas is a physician uh, and a sociologist. He is the director of the Human Nature Lab at Yale University, where he is the Sterling Professor of Social and Natural Science. He's also the co-director of the Yale Institute for Network Science. He's the co-author with James Fowler of Connected, The Surprising Power of Our Social Networks and How They Shape Our Lives, and the author of Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins for Good Society. And Nicholas has been on this podcast before. Um, and on that occasion, Helen Pluckrose and I interviewed him about uh, Blueprint. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And uh, he is also the author of the um, book, Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. Welcome, Nicholas. Thank you so much for having me, Iona. I should have said welcome back, actually. <laughs> I remember our conversation about Blueprint. Oh, it's one of my favorite podcast episodes. Um, so I want to just dive straight in. In your book, in um, Apollo's Arrow, you talk about the three different phases of respiratory pandemics, the immediate phase, the intermediate phase, and the post-pandemic phase. And uh, you talk about this phase that we're currently in, uh, obviously not in the book, which came out in October 2020, um, but in more recent video, in more recent interviews, you've talked about our current phase as being not the beginning of the end, but the end of the beginning. Um, could you explain what you mean by that? Sure. So one of the things that is um, important to note about this experience that we're having right now, which seems so alien and unnatural to so many of us, is that in fact, it is, it is neither of those things. That is to say, plagues are, are not new uh, to, to our species. Plagues are just new to us. You know, we think this is crazy what's been happening, but in fact, plagues have been afflicting human beings for thousands of years. And, um, you know, they're in the Bible. They're in, um, they're in Homer's Iliad. The beginning of the Iliad, the canonical work of Western fiction is about a plague that's afflicting the, uh, Greeks besieging Troy. Uh, plagues are in Shakespeare. They're in, uh, they're in Cervantes. They're, they're, our ancestors have had this experience. And over the last two or 300 years, we also have more scientific, let's say, records of respiratory pandemics, especially over the last hundred years. And this scientific knowledge, uh, which is distinct with, but can be paired to all the other historical records we have about other plagues, can help us to understand the typical trajectory of a respiratory pandemic. And so what I'm about to describe is, is fairly typical of a serious pandemic. So we get respiratory pandemics every 10 or 20 years. We get serious ones every 50 or 100 years. The COVID-19 pandemic is the second most 
serious respiratory pandemic we've had in 100 years. Uh, of course, everyone knows the 1918 so-called Spanish influenza pandemic. That was worse. The previous uh, silver medalist uh, was the 1957 uh, pandemic. But now uh, COVID-19 has taken um, that place. And from these experiences we've had in the past, it's possible to identify, let's say, three phases of a major respiratory pandemic. The first phase is the immediate phase. And all this was in the book. And, 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 in, and in honesty, um, things are unfolding exactly as was typical. Uh, you know, it's happening exactly almost on schedule. So the first phase is the immediate phase, which is going to end soon in, in the United States and soon thereafter around the world. So in early, you know, by the middle of 2022, the immediate phase will be over. And the immediate phase is when we are experiencing the biological and epidemiological, you know, shock of the virus. So the virus leaps into the new virus, leaps into the human population, starts spreading and spreading and spreading. Uh, it's, you know, eventually going to infect everyone. Uh, you're either going to be vaccinated with this for this condition or you'll be infected with the virus, almost everyone on the planet. And as the virus is just spreading and spreading, it's like a wave, like a tsunami washing over the human population. And so we we have the death, we have the disability, we have the acute disruptions, the the, the non-pharmaceutical interventions, the, the business and school closures, and all of the stuff that we've all been experiencing. But eventually, that the waters recede. The, the, the wave, you know, which has rolled over us like the tsunami, stops and recedes and, and leaves behind it a kind of devastation. So so we we've gotten we've gotten we've reached the point where we transition to the intermediate phase. Now that point is usually marked by something known as herd immunity. This is the idea that a population of people can be immune to a condition even if not every individual within that population is immune. So if you think about it, if for example, if you vaccinate 96% of the population for measles, and one of the 4% unvaccinated people somehow gets a case of the measles, you don't get an outbreak. You don't get an epidemic because that person is surrounded by immunized individuals. And that percentage, that 96%, is the herd immunity threshold. And that threshold varies according to the intrinsic infectiousness of the pathogen. So the more easily it spreads, the higher that percentage needs to be. And for reasons we can go into, the for the coronavirus pandemic, that number is now quite high because we the virus is mutated to become quite spreadable. So basically, 80 or 90% of the population is going to need to have acquired immunity, either through natural infection or through vaccination. And that's about to happen. Like any, you know, within the next couple of months, we're going to reach that threshold. And then what will happen is the deaths will, which are now still 2,500 a day approximately, which is shockingly high, uh, are mostly among, un, almost exclusively among unvaccinated individuals. Those deaths will come down. And then we'll have a low background rate of deaths from coronavirus. The disease will have become endemic. It'll, it'll be like influenza. You know, it'll be just in the background killing, let's say, 50 to 100 people a day. And that's going to happen in the next few months. And then we'll enter the intermediate phase. And the intermediate phase is when we have to clean up the mess. You know, the tsunami washed ashore and then has, the waters have receded, which is great. But now there's vast devastation everywhere. You know, the houses are ruined. The the, their boats, you know, several miles inland, they're big piles of cars. And so for coronavirus, we're going to have to deal with the clinical, psychological, social, and economic aftershocks of the virus. And that'll take some time for us to do that. Millions of kids have missed school. Millions of businesses have closed. 
millions of people will be mourning the death of loved ones, grieving the death. Uh, we'll have millions of people who've been disabled by the virus. They weren't killed, but they were, they were injured by the virus and so on and all the economic aftershocks. And then finally, I think roughly in 2024, we will put that sort of mostly behind us and we'll enter the post pandemic phase. And I think that is going to be a little bit of a party, sort of like the roaring twenties of the 21st century, like the roaring twenties of the, of the 20th century. I think, I think people will feel, um, great relief. You know, they've been sort of locked up, constrained socially for so long. So people will seek out social interactions in, in restaurants and nightclubs and sporting events and political rallies and musical concerts. I think we might see some sexual licentiousness, some loosening of social mores. Uh, you know, my, my, my sister uh, says that I should be careful to uh, note whenever I make this prediction that this only applies to unmarried couples. <laughs> this, this one doesn't apply to married couples. Um, well, um, my boyfriend is probably going to be listening to this, and I hope he, I hope he doesn't think it applies to our unmarried couple either. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But the point is, there's going to be kind of a loosening of social mores, and I think, and the, and and then there'll be like a, a kind of economic boom as well, because you know people will start spending their money. You know, t during plague, savings rates typically go up, and they have on this plague, and then after it's over, you know, the survivors. You know, party in the streets. You know, they're they're so happy that they survived this calamity, whether it's a a plague or an earthquake or a famine or a war or whatever it is. It's a very normal human uh, response. Anyway, so sometime in 2024, and these are all approximate, we'll enter the post pandemic phase. And let me say one more thing, and then I'll shut up. I know I've been very long winded in my response. No, to no, please. Opening question. There's just a lot of information there. Uh, is that all of these predictions depend on the non emergence? of a new, more worrisome strain of the virus. In other words, if, if we have a new variant, not Omicron, but something else, that is either fully evades the vaccines, and let's, let's understand that neither Delta nor Omicron fully evaded the vaccines. The vaccines were still effective against these, substantially so. If we have a new variant that fully evades the vaccines and or if the, a new variant is much deadlier than the current variant. So the current variants kill, you know, between 0.5 and 1.2% of the people that they infect. But there are other coronaviruses, very similar ones, which kill 10% or even 30% of the people they infect. If this COVID-19, if SARS-CoV-2 were to mutate to become much deadlier or to fully evade the vaccines, everything I've said about the phases of the epidemic would have to be revised and we'd have to go back to square one, really. And uh, But I put the probability of that at between one and ten percent, so low. I think we're we're on a glide path to the end of this pandemic. We're going to exit the initial phase very soon, and then we'll be in the intermediate phase for a while, and then eventually this will all become a memory, just like all the plagues that our ancestors had to deal with. What an optimistic vision! I hope from your lips to Hura Master's ear, um, <laughs> all COVID. Uh, restrictions have just been lifted here in England, um, as you might have heard. Do you think that that was premature? Not necessarily. I think a lot depends. I think a lot depends on the vaccination rate in the population. And here, by vaccination, I mean people who've also been boosted. So the evidence seems to suggest that if you've had three exposures to the virus or the vaccine, so for example, if you're if you had two shots and then got the virus naturally. Uh, or you survive the virus naturally and then got a shot. 
or had two shots and then a booster, that that level of immune, immune exposure confers a substantial immunity to you and has other benefits lesser in terms of becoming infected or transmitting the virus. So, so the principal benefit of immunization is that it prevents serious disease. But distinct from that, it may also prevent you even from getting infected. And the vaccines aren't as good at preventing you becoming infected as they are preventing you from dying if you become infected. And the benefits of the vaccine in reducing transmission, because by shortening the duration of your illness, it, it, it limits the number of new people that you can infect while you are sick with the virus or infected with it. So if you can immunize enough people or if enough people have naturally gotten infected and you reach this very high percentage that I was saying earlier, 80 or 90% of the population has either become infected or vaccinated, then at that point, I think you can uh, really relax the restrictions in the society and realizing that the virus is still around, it's still going to kill some people and individuals may wish to take additional precautions like avoiding crowds or wearing masks or uh, only congregating in well-ventilated situations or, or, or institutions like firms might want to also have testing for their employees. So they say, okay, everyone has to be vaccinated. We are going to resume having business meetings. We're going to resume being unmasked, but we're also going to test you, you know, once a week or twice a week or whatever. So you have vaccination plus testing. These are all reasonable responses, uh, I think, at this phase of the uh, pandemic. Conditional, once again, on enough people being immunized. Mm, yes. Well, I think immune take-up is, is higher here than in the U.S. Um, and I, I think also a lot of people have had um, the virus, in addition to having been triple double vaccinated and boosted. Um, certainly my housemates have all been triple vaccinated and boosted, and they've had COVID twice. Um, I'm sorry, you have some housemates that had three shots which shots did they get? The AstraZeneca? Um, AstraZeneca. I think, uh, so I think one of them actually got Pfizer. Um, but most of us got AstraZeneca twice. And then we had the booster. Booster um, with what? A few Pfizer? months ago. The booster was Moderna. Moderna. Okay. That's a good, it's also good to mix and match the vaccines uh, in terms of giving your body exposure to slightly different versions of the um the the uh, the uh, the RNA code for the spike protein or, or the delivery is each vaccine has subtle differences and these may be beneficial in terms of your body's exposure to um, the spike protein that your body makes in response to the vaccine. Uh, right. But then some people Wait, you have uh, mm. you have a roommate who had three shots and then got sick twice from COVID. Uh no, once. once. So my housemates have they had COVID back in. Um, April of last year, um, almost certainly. At that point, there were no uh, tests. Oh, and but, then they were uh, vaccinated afterwards. They were vaccinated afterwards, okay, and then two of them have since also had COVID, have had Omicron, um, but oh. without without bad symptoms. Actually, yes, um, they they knew they had Omicron because they had to test for another reason, and the test came back positive. Okay, and they were feeling just ever so slightly crummy, but really. Yeah. Um, a very few, uh, like a not very bad cold. Yeah, that's pretty typical. I, I would question whether without a test, we can be sure that at the outset of the pandemic, they actually were infected. It's possible, mm. but there are a lot of people who think I had a really nasty cold in, you know, March or April of 2020, and it must have been COVID. And that's, it's actually not true uh, in most cases. I'm not saying they didn't. It's just, I'm saying it's not, I wouldn't assume it and it's not possible to be certain. Mm. 
But mm. um, it's it's not. I think the main symptom that they had was um, the paros- parosmia. Yes. Parosmia. So um, uh, uh, my husband threw away a, a bunch of spices and our Earl Grey tea because mm-hmm. he thought they'd turned to dust. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, they were complaining about not being able to taste things. Yes. Um, and one of my housemates actually uh, had a glass of his Laphroaig, his wonderful Laphroaig whiskey, and he said it just tasted like vodka. <laughs> there was the sort of oily feeling of the alcohol, but no actual taste. Um, you, should switch, you should switch to Oban if you want a really good whiskey. <laughs> well, I I actually prefer the um, I prefer the Lowland whiskies. I like things like Balvenie uh-huh. myself. But but the upshot, the clearly the message is it's important to keep a whiskey on hand and drink regularly. <laughs> yes, just for diagnostic. Check. For diagnostic purposes. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Right. Well, no, in all seriousness, though, so I think um, leaving aside the particulars of your roommates, it's clear one can get infected after vaccination. And this is a widespread misperception. People think, you know, I got vaccinated, I still got infected. That means the vaccines don't work. No, that's not correct. The vaccine is doing, you know, exactly what it was supposed to do, which is preventing you from dying uh, if you got infected. So you had a mild illness that might otherwise, data show, have been severe. So, um, so yes, that's right. And I think people who've been exposed both to the vaccine and to natural variants of the virus actually will have the most robust immunity going forward. Um, now I'm not, by saying that, I'm not saying people should seek out infection. That's still not rational. The whole point of vaccination is to get the benefits of exposure to the pathogen without the risk of contracting the pathogen. So you should not deliberately seek out infection. But if by chance you have been vaccinated and infected or infected first and then prudently also got a vaccination, you at that point have quite robust immunity to currently circulating variants. Well, talking about the parosmia, um, I wanted to ask you, how common do you think long-term sequelae are after COVID? Um, so I'm not just talking about are injuries that you might sustain from the virus itself and from, for example, uh, having been on a ventilator, which I know can cause some damage, but also the long COVID syndrome, which I have heard a variety of different uh, views, on, scientific views on that, including views that, that long COVID is, is purely, um, that, that long COVID doesn't exist. It's a purely psychosomatic condition. Um, what are your views about long long COVID, and what do you think the risks are of getting uh, long COVID? If, for example, you've uh, been unvaccinated and get COVID, and if you've been vaccinated and boosted and get COVID, I'm not sure how to answer that question. Um, partly because I don't know how to define these terms exactly, and and mm. I think this long COVID has become a bit of a. I mean, there's no doubt that some people, when they're infected, have symptoms for a very sustained period of time. These can be neurological symptoms, fatigue, uh, psychological symptoms. Uh, they can have a cough or respiratory symptoms. And some people have a, sh- a long course of the, of the infection. And there, it's well known that people can have so-called post-viral syndromes. Uh, so there's no doubt that's happening. Uh, but but um, how that differs, whether you're exposed naturally or by, uh, without having been vaccinated or after having been vaccinated, and what the prevalence of so-called long COVID is not something that I know offhand, 
But what I can tell you is, is answer a related question, which is the following question, which is that some number of people, regardless of whether they have a short course or a long course after infection, some number of those people will have their bodies scarred by virtue of having been infected. So I'm, 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 what I'm saying here is now you've recovered from your infection, whether it was long or short COVID. And now you're, 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 you know, you, 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 you put it behind you, but your body could be marked. You're, you could have some pulmonary scarring, for example, or you could have some, uh, some decrements in your kidneys, uh, some renal insufficiency or some pancreatic insufficiency or some cardiac problems, some cardiac arrhythmias, for example. Or you could have some neurologic or, or psychiatric problems as a result of having been infected by the virus. And our best estimates of this, this is still unclear because, you know, we have to wait for the passage of a lot of time before we know the answers to these questions. But if I had to guess, I think about five times as many people as die of the condition will be disabled by the condition, will have some mild or moderate or even severe disability as a result of having been exposed to the virus. So, you know, so if 1% of the people who are infected die, then maybe 5% of the people who are infected and survive uh, will then have some kind of disability as a result of having been infected. And this is not, this is not uncommon for serious respiratory pathogens. Just to be clear, we, this is known from other um, you know, examples of a serious respiratory path. Um, and it's just, it's just reasonable, right? I mean, you, you know, you, when you're injured, when your body's injured, sometimes you heal completely and sometimes you don't. And so this is part of what I meant earlier when I was talking about the intermediate phase. The, the healthcare system is going to have to cope with large numbers of additional people who are sick uh, as a result of the pandemic sweeping through our population. And we're not going to know the full measure of that uh, for a couple more years. But I think we're going to have people who are afflicted by this virus uh, well after or who, who whose bodies are still bearing the brunt of the virus well after this, this we put the pandemic behind them. Are those are those rough estimates? I know those are just very rough estimates, but are those 1% and 5% figures, do they refer to unvaccinated people or vaccinated or both? Well, no, the mortality, the 1% is vast, vastly lower if you're vaccinated. That's the whole point. Mm. Uh, yeah. And so 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 the number disabled would would not would also proportionately drop. It's a it's a 5x kind of estimate. In other words, you know, if if uh, uh, whatever the whatever the number of people who who um, who let's say if you if you have a thousand people who've been vaccinated and uh, and you give them uh, and they're infected with a virus and uh, one of them dies uh, despite having been vaccinated then what we're saying is that maybe five of them also will have some kind of disability. So there, there, there's no doubt that vaccination greatly, greatly reduces the risk of death. And, um, and I, it's almost certain will also greatly reduce the risk of you know, disability because you will have had a milder course of the illness. Great. Thank you very much. I just wanted to check that that wasn't a sort of averaged figure across all cases. No. Um, great. Um, I, uh, so... Um, one thing that is, uh, one thing that's going about to change in England is that other than, I believe on London transport, it will continue because London transport is not, um, is not governed by Boris, but by the mayor of, is within the remit of the mayor of London. So they will continue to have mask mandates. But other than that, mask mandates are going to completely end here. And I, um, I have heard conflicting evidence on the efficacy of masks. So, um, 
Of course, there was the, at the beginning of the, at the very beginning, uh, many health professionals were saying masks were unnecessary, uh, and ineffective against coronavirus. And then, um, as, as our kind of knowledge of the virus increased, most people's, uh, most official views on that changed. I think all official views changed, um, to the idea that masks were highly effective, especially in um, preventing you from transmitting the virus to others. Since um, uh, since then, I've also um, heard some scientific studies, and I don't know whether I am misunderstanding them, but I've heard some sci- scientists are suggesting that masks may, uh, ordinary cloth masks may be much less efi- uh, efficient than we thought at preventing spread. Um, what are, what are your feelings about that? Well, there's a there's a vast literature now on masking. Um, and again, we're not the first people to study masks. They were literally studies of of masks, the benefits of masking during the 1918 pandemic, where people would would wear masks, cloth, multi layered cloth masks, and and cough on uh, on uh, little um, cultures, and they were trying to see the extent to which the masks pre- pre- uh, prevented. Uh, bacteria from being expectorated from your body. Uh, so there's, a, there's an enormous literature on masking and, um, and whether, as you said, whether the masks prevent an infected person from infecting others, whether masks help prevent an uninfected person from becoming infected. Both of those are benefits of masking. Both are true, by the way. Uh, the difference between cloth and regular masks, uh, whether masks as, as, as used in the typical population have a discernible effect at the population level. Uh, people have been doing not only epidemiological studies of masking, but also, you know, uh, aerodynamic studies where they, they, they fit people with masks and then, and then study the number of virus, you know, particles that, that can be found in the air around them and on and on and on a huge literature. I think it's this, my summary of this literature, plus just the common sense understanding of what a barrier does to a, pathogen is that masking is helpful. Now, how helpful depends on many things, depends on the, the, which variant of the virus, uh, you know, how easily it spreads, what kind of mask, what kind of population, uh, how many people are you exposed to? What is the length of the exposure? Is there other ventilation around that is, you know, providing some benefit and on and on and on. But I don't think it's reasonable to believe that masking is useless. Masking is clearly helpful. The, the question is, is it still necessary or worth it given other aspects of the pandemic and given the costs of masking, you know, the inconvenience that, for example, for children, especially for young children, I don't think, you know, kids in elementary school, if you look at the cost benefit of that, I don't really think they should be masked. I think the costs to learning and social interaction to young children at the current moment in the pandemic, when we have high numbers of adults who are vaccinated, I don't think are really worth it. Uh, it, It doesn't, the, the, the risk to children is so small, the, the clinical risk to children is so small, and the real reason to mask kids is to prevent them from bringing the virus home, you know, from being vectors and bringing the virus home to their parents. But if the parents are fully boosted and vaccinated uh, and the kids are running a very small risk of um, death from infection, which they always are in this pathogen, uh, given the adverse effects of learning and socialization in small children, I wouldn't necessarily wear masks. Now, on the other hand, if I was going into a rock concert with strangers whose vaccine status I didn't know that was poorly ventilated and indoors, 
uh, well, then yes, I would wear a mask, <laughs> you know, even though I'm vaccinated. So, so I think it, my so my point is is there's so uh, so my my summary point would be that masks, both common sense and scientific evidence of diverse kinds of scientific evidence, epidemiological, uh, engineering evidence, and so on, uh, suggest the benefit of masking. Uh, uh, but it depends on the circumstances, and I don't necessarily think we all should be masked all the time any longer. Talking about masking and other measures, um, I um, COVID nineteen seems to have cut a particularly devastating sway through India, uh, despite some of the world's most draconian lockdowns. I mean, infamously, Indian police actually killed a few people for um, for being outdoors um, during an hour when their their particular area was supposed to be under lockdown. It was ferocious. But there are obviously other factors that work there. And I want to ask you if you know which countries have been most affected by the pandemic and what do you think the factors are that have affected that? Well, I don't know the stats offhand in India, but um, I do know the United States is, is, is <laughs> sort of leading the world in deaths per capita. Uh, so we have about 2,600 deaths per million, about one in one in 300 almost Americans, one in 350 Americans has died from this condition, which is just appalling uh, toll of death. And, but just to benchmark it, that's about 20 times higher than Korea. Korea has 131 deaths per million, and the United States has 2,638 deaths, deaths per million. Now, even Canada did much better than the United States. Canada has about 876 deaths per million. It's about, the United States is about three times worse than Canada and uh, 20 times worse than Korea or Japan. Uh, for example. So so the United States definitely has done really bad on a per capita basis. I don't know offhand the statistics for India. Um, and also, I'm sure we don't have good statistics in India. But I'm sure eventually we, this will be known. You know, using the so-called method of excess deaths, which was invented by a, a British, the founder of one of the founders of epidemiology, a British um, scientist by the name of William Farr in the middle of the 19th century, uh, we will eventually know the toll of death, the overall toll of death uh, from the pandemic in all of these countries, just by counting the number of deaths, because deaths, the, the fact of death is typically well recorded. Not always. In many rural villages in India, there's people die and we don't need, there's no records of it. Uh, but certainly in the, in uh, other parts of the world, the vital statistics records are of sufficient quality that we'll be able to count how many more people died in 2020 and 2021 than otherwise would have died looking at the previous five years, and we'll be able to ascribe that toll um, to the pandemic. So we'll um, know. Which countries do you think have had the best response and what have they done? Well, certainly uh, Japan and Korea that we mentioned have done exceptionally well. Uh, and they've had a very rational uh, science-based policy. They have understood early on that transmission was mostly indoors. Uh, they've understood the risks of uh, Loud speaking, they they people have been um, they wore masks. Uh, they they've had excellent uptake of the vaccines. Um, I think New Zealand um, did exceptionally well. Of course, uh, the challenge for New Zealand was and remains to vaccinate their population as completely and as rapidly as possible. Uh, but they're you know they're a wealthy island democracy, and they were able to to lock down and prevent people from coming in. Um, other islands did not fare so well, you know, Iceland, for example, or, or England, uh, for example. 
you know, it was just not possible to secure the borders rapidly enough, which is typical, by the way. You, it's very difficult to stop the virus by, by closing your borders. And even in New Zealand, eventually the virus started appearing and reappearing. And, you know, they had outbreaks that, you know, it's, it's exceptionally difficult to, 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 uh, to completely prevent the entry of the virus. Uh, for example, just to illustrate why, the, the originally the requirements of quarantine that you quarantine for two weeks were based on um, statistical analyses of how, how long a time there could be uh, between infection, uh, the, 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 when you become infected, and your ability to transmit the virus. So let's say after you're infected, immediately you can't really transmit the virus. It's, you, know, you have a few viral particles and they're deep in your lungs. But as the virus starts to reproduce in your body by two or three or four days, now you can transmit it to others. And then as your body wipes out the virus, in about two weeks, you're no longer infectious, let's say. So there's a kind of distribution of times when you're infectious from, let's say, two to 14 days. But that's all statistical. There's some people who can still transmit the virus at 15 or 20 or, let's say, 30 days. So let's say someone goes to New Zealand, they're infected with the virus, they have no symptoms. And they're kept under quarantine for two weeks, uh, and everyone thinks, okay, this person didn't get sick, can't infect anyone, but actually on the on the fifteenth day after they're let out of quarantine, suddenly they're able to infect, or they were able to infect people, and so the virus now leaks into the population despite strict quarantine at the border. So, um, uh, so anyway, the point is is that even New Zealand had outbreaks. But I think New Zealand did quite well. Um, Japan, Korea, Canada, I think, did quite well. You know, some countries did well. One more thing, by the way, about this. Not all of the geographic variation is necessarily ascribable to the public policies implemented by the state. So it is always the case with, with, path, with, with plagues, and in, in particular with respiratory pandemics, that we have substantial geographic heterogeneity in attack rates for reasons that are not always clear. For example, in the 1957 influenza pandemic, the, the attack rate, uh, the number of people infected per capita was 30 times higher in Chile than in Egypt, for example. Now, why? Well, some of that has to do, for example, with the weather. You know, the climate in Egypt is different than the climate in, uh, in Chile. Some of it has to do with the age of the population. I mean, it, you know, for example, uh, many more people died in Italy uh, than in Kenya from COVID. Well, the median age in Italy is 47, and the median age in Kenya is like 17 or 18. They're very young people in Kenya. And so we know the virus doesn't kill young people, so it's not surprising that uh, more people died of the virus in Italy than in Kenya. So the age of the population, the, the, social, um, the social practices of the population are important. For example, um, uh, uh, people in Italy live in intergenerational households, grandchildren, children, grandparents, they all uh, live together. Whereas in Sweden, they do not. And so um, in given Italian, typical Italian household structure, little kids would go out, get the virus, come home and, and give it to grandma. Uh, and so that's another explanation, the, the household structure, the wealth of the society matters. So wealth, weather, demography, and so on, all of these things can have effects on the, the variation from place to place in the impact of, of the pathogen. However, and public policies, you know, some countries do well and some countries do poorly uh, in how they implement different sorts of responses to the virus also can vary. However, analyses of this with prior pathogens 
show that only about half of the variance can be explained by such measures, meaning that about half of the variance is just chance, meaning that we don't often know why some places are worse hit than others. It's just dumb luck. And so some of the variation from place to place won't be ascribable to public policy. It'll just be chance. For example, in the United States, uh, Florida initially was spared the pandemic and people thought, oh, you know, the governor there had somehow miraculously figured out how to thread the needle. Well, no, I think he just got lucky because <laughs> subsequently the virus devastated uh, Florida. A lot of people have been talking, just talking about um, government interventions for a moment. Um, a lot of people have expressed uh, a waning of, so there's been both uh, what you you yourself have called a pandemic of um, misinformation, or I think you talk about dueling contagions of infection, of dueling infection and misinformation. Yeah. And at the same time, yeah. there's also been um, a, a, perhaps a waning of support for the World, World Health Organization and other health authorities. And I think it's been, or at least as I have perceived it, it's been less because of because they have updated their their guidelines as they've received new information, but because of the kind of perhaps inevitably condescending and authoritarian tone in which pronouncements were made. Um, so I had a very public um, argument with someone on Twitter about masking right at the beginning of the pandemic. This is just to give one example, but there have been many such. And he was, he just said, you know, um, look, the science is in, masks don't work, and they're completely unnecessary. And the only reason you are wearing a mask, uh, meaning me personally, are wearing a mask is for psychological reassurance, etc. And, um, and then, you know, several months later, I just don't, but, but, no, but he I was don't think in, he's right. He was about incorrect. That. I mean, and then several fault. months later, of course, new guidelines came in on masks and there was a better understanding um, of masking. And he was then advocating masking. But his tone had not changed. His tone was still, all of you who are not masking are stupid. The science is in. We must all mask. And I think that I have noticed that a lot of people have really taken a uh, have have really been um, the credibility of the institutions has been eroded less by the updating of information than by this um, kind of absolutist tone of authority that they've adopted, which um, you have never adopted. <laughs> um, what do you think about that theory? Do you think there has been an erosion of trust in medical institutions? And if so, how can we counter that? I don't know the answer to that. I think I think I have several things that I would like to say. Though the first is is that part of the response of a of the of a of a polity of a, of a of a nation to a pandemic threat is public health messaging. In other words, getting the messaging right, getting the right people speaking in the right way to the right population is just as important as developing a vaccine or mask wearing or border closures or whatever else you're doing to respond to. To the pandemic, and and this is long and well understood in public health circles. The importance of public health, importance of public health messaging. And here, I think that uh, everything from putting the right credible people in front of the uh, nation. For example, in Greece, they had a the prime minister of Greece. I think very prudently early on 
relied on a on a on a on an epidemiologist by the name of Tsudras, who um, you know became the face of the scientific face of the pandemic in Greece and was seen as someone with tremendous credibility. And he was very direct with people and very honest with them. And I think this was very helpful in the quite effective initial Greek response to the pandemic. So, so, so getting the right people and then having them speak in the right way. So, for example, expressing uncertainty about what they're saying or a degree of confidence. So you tell people, here's what I'm recommending. I'm recommending you wear masks. Here's why I'm recommending it. Here's the evidence that I have for this claim. Uh, and here's my degree of confidence in this belief. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm reasonably sure about this, or I'm certain about this, or I'm quite sure. I'm not so sure, but I think it's a good idea. So this type of communication, I think, is very effective, and it helps the public to understand how science works. You know, when, when scientists revise their opinions based on new information, that's exactly what they should be doing. That's a feature of science, not a bug. Scientists changing their mind is how we want science to work. It's theologians, let's say, or, or priests who, you know, there's a dogma, you know, you're not supposed to change your mind. And there's that famous British, I don't know if it was Churchill or someone else. I don't think it was Churchill. I think it was someone else who said this, you know, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, <laughs> sir? You know, <laughs> you know, so, so it's, um, so that's appropriate for scientists to change their mind. And I think it would have been helpful from the beginning to help the, for scientists and politicians to help the public to understand how science works and what's, what's its relevance in, in the, collective catastrophe that we were facing. Now, scientists also sometimes have venal interests. You know, they're human. They can be biased. They can make mistakes. And, and this is un unfortunately also a reality. But here is where you, you have many scientists that are working to produce results and to check each other. And um, where I think you can have experts. And yes, I, I do mean experts because are, like anything else in life, there's expertise in epidemiology. Just like there's expertise in surgery or cabinet making or plumbing, uh, when you have a plumbing problem, you want an expert plumber. You don't want, you know, your neighbor who <laughs> fixed a toilet once to come over. Uh, so necessarily, so so you know, we want to have rely on that expertise, people who have spent their time, who can then process all this information and digest it and make recommendations for us, but not treat us as you said autocratically, not say, just do as I say, because I said so. No, who can say, look, I'm an expert in this area. Here's what I believe to be true. Here's why I believe it. Let me explain it to you. And here, what are your questions? Let me answer your questions as best I can. Now, let me say a, a sort of another thing. So I've said public health messaging is important. I've said there have been stumbles, which were, you know, embarrassing and wrong in communication. Let me make a third point about this sort of absolutism point that you were making which relates to broader social trends in our society that preceded the pandemic that, um, that harmed us. You know, I think the pandemic, the virus struck us at a particularly vulnerable moment um, in history. We, we have almost century-high levels of economic inequality in the United States, and I believe in Britain, uh, prior to the pandemic, very high levels of economic inequality. We had a lot of political polarization in the United States, less so in Britain. Uh, but a lot of, uh, you know, we had documentably high levels of distrust uh, within the citizenry of each other and a kind of skepticism about the ability of us as citizens to resolve our disagreements by voting rather than by demonizing each other. We had a lot of distrust in institutions and in elites. And uh, the sort of the, there was an ascendant kind of sensibility that the elites were out to get us. 
uh, and uh, the system was rigged. And um, and scientists got thrown into that category. They were like, okay, the scientists are some kind of elite, and they're you know they're trying to benefit at our expense. It's a little unclear to me how scientists would do that. Where you know when I recommend vaccination, I don't profit from recommending that. It's not like I own stock in pharmaceutical companies, or you know I don't, I don't understand why someone would think I you know I have some kind of personal interest in whatever it is that I'm saying about epidemiology uh, and. Um, and then we also, as a society, had sort of prior to this, our, our the, the the quality of our civic discourse had declined. We'd kind of lost the capacity for nuance in our conversations. You know, people were saying, you're with me or you're against me. Things are black and white. Well, that's just not true, right? Adults know that that many things in life are subtle and have shades of gray. And I wish our conversations about these things could be just like that. So instead of saying masking is definitely bad and masking is definitely good and you you know, vaccination is, is, you know, essential or vaccination is, uh, this, you know, state <laughs> terror, you know, whether we, you know, we can just have a kind of nuanced conversation about this. And, uh, so, so all of these things you see were problems in our society before the virus hit. And I think the virus relentlessly exploited mm-hmm. these weaknesses mm-hmm. in us. And many more people died needlessly because of our stupidity, you know, our polit- needless politicization, you know, I think, I think it's great that we, both in England and the United States and in many other countries where there are listeners, that we live in plural democracies. You know, that, that, uh, it, I like the fact that my fellow citizens have a range of political beliefs. If I, if I, it would be bad if I lived in a society where that wasn't the case. You know, it would be North Korea, you know, or East Germany or something. You know, like, uh, you don't want to live in a state, uh, where, there isn't a wide range of views because the existence of a wide range of views means you're living in a free state, which is good. So, but what, what that means is that we, I have to tolerate disagreement. And, and then the question is, well, well, how do we resolve our disagreements? And the way we resolve our disagreements is, is by voting, right? You, we vote and, and, and in, and in our democracies, we have a chance to vote again. You know, if we voted, if the majority felt one way today and two years from now, we don't think that way anymore, we can vote again. And so, so I think that, I think we have to be able to accept that there's going to be a range of beliefs. For example, in my case, there are people who are strongly opposed to vaccination. I do not think we should, um, force them to be, you know, I don't think the police should be sent to their door or the example you gave earlier where the police were shooting people who were violating, uh, oh, you said, in India. Actually beating them with lattes, um, not shooting, but yes, yeah, some people were okay. killed. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. That's, you know, that is a level of enforcement that exceeds what I think is appropriate in a, in a free country. So uh, it's inhumane. It's not necessary. So, so there, so there are people with a range of views on any topic. And I think we have to resort to persuasion and democratic will in order to realize public policy, because the alternative is some kind of autocratic, um, uh, use of power, which I don't think is what any of us uh, would want. By the way, on the, just to finish the vaccination point, so uh, while I do not think we should send the police to someone's house to arrest them or to force them to be vaccinated, uh, I do think as a citizenry, we can make it inconvenient for them to participate in civic life. So we can say, you know, employers can say, if you wish to work in our firm, you have to be vaccinated because we don't want to run the risk of you being infected and imposing costs on us as a result, or you are infection infecting others, even if they've already been vaccinated. This is the nature of a contagious disease. Your behavior imposes externalities on others. 
It's something that you do, which can harm other people. And therefore, that is the classic justification for state power. Um, you know, your liberty ends at, to swing your hands, ends at my nose. So, um, so, so what I'm saying is I don't think we should make it, um, you know, we should force people who don't wish to be vaccinated to be vaccinated, but we can make it, we can as a state say, you know, well, if you, your kids need to be vaccinated to go to school, which we, by the way, have been saying for decades in our country, uh, or if you wish to work at this firm, or if you wish to travel, uh, you know, that you need to, um, be vaccinated. So anyway, that's, that's what I'm saying. Um, finally, I wanted to talk a little bit about the psychological impacts of the pandemic. So you, um, you talk about, you've, you've talked before about people, uh, searching for meaning and, um, in both political activities and also in career choices as a result of, um, how they feel about living through a pandemic. Could you say more about that? Well, I think um, I've been doing a lot of thinking about this particular topic for various reasons. Um, and I think that um, historically, plagues are a time when people search for meaning. Um, you know, it, when death is in the streets, when people are sequestered in their homes, it provides ample impetus and opportunity to reflect on the meaning of your life and to reflect on what kind of society do you want to live in? Uh, what's a good society? And, um, and so there are various ways this has been manifested historically and has been manifested in COVID-19. Historically, for example, there's typically a rise in religiosity during plagues, right? People, you know, turn to God and turn to religion because they think, you know, they're, they're suffering, they're uncertain, they're scared. Um, and, the same kind of thing has happened here in uh, during the COVID-19, uh, even though church attendance was down because churches were closed, for example, in synagogues and temples and other uh, houses of worship, um, uh, religiosity went up. And there was other kinds of evidence for search for meaning. I think political activism went up. Even some of the hot debates we had about masking and, for example, the, 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 the Black Lives Matter protests in uh, a year and a half ago. I think many of those were prompted by not just the long history of racialized violence in our country, not just by the fact that it was summertime and people were either unemployed because of the pandemic or cooped up at home and they were hot and so on. All the classic explanations for for social, you know, for rioting or for social movements and so on, um, but also because people were thinking about what was important to them in their lives. So I think I think the search for meaning played an important role, for instance, in the BLM protests. Um, which also, by the way, took place in England. I mean, it's amazing to me that George Floyd, a murder of George Floyd prompted, you know, protests in the United Kingdom, which is a completely different set of, uh, uh, ethno-racial issues there. So, so, uh, so I think, and, and also, by the way, I think the search for meaning played a role in the January 6th insurrection here on the right. You know, the, one of the things that amazed me about that, the, 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 the storming of the United States Capitol, was that so many of those people were unmasked. They made no effort to, to conceal their identity. They were proud of what they were doing. And so I think for them, you see, it was a kind of a, a kind of turn to what they thought was a patriotic, you know, they were re rethinking and reframing their perceptions of society and their perceptions of their role, partly, I think, prompted by the pandemic. And then you see other indicators too. For example, so-called essential workers like truckers or nurses' aides saw a new purpose in their lives, right? Like, you know, if every, if the whole nation is locked up 
you know, you're driving a truck to deliver goods is really damned important. And you can have a new connection to your occupation that you may not have realized before. Uh, and then we've also seen a spike in applicants to nursing schools and medical schools, which I also think reflects this kind of search for meaning. So we've seen all these uh, indicators, uh, I think, of a kind of, the, of, a, of a search for meaning at the individual and collective level that, um, that is very typical of plagues and is, is, I think, a psychological response to the uncertainty and fear and risk that necessarily accompany all serious mm. pathogens. How has your own life changed as a result of the pandemic, Nicholas? Um, has has the way you approach relationships, work, travel, etc., changed? Well, clearly it has changed. But do you think any of those changes have been permanent? Are there things you have rethought as a result of the pandemic? And do you think, in addition to losses, we may have gained things? Well, I mean, you know, there've been a lot of, like everyone else, there've been a lot of practical changes in my life. You know, I, I, I don't, haven't traveled very much at all in two years, but of course I never really liked to travel. So it's not a big loss for me. I hated business travel and, and, uh, Oh God, I love traveling. Yeah. But even, even recreational travel, I like it, but I'm kind of a homebody. I like, I just like being in my office at home. And, uh, and so, um, and you know I'm I'm almost sixty. I'm fifty nine, and I've I've been to. I mean, there are many places I've not been that I would love to go, like Machu Picchu, for example. Or I've never been to Japan. I would love to go to Japan. Uh, but I've been to almost. I've been to many, many, many places. You know, I've been to to Red Square. I've been to Tasmania. Uh, of course, I've I've been to the Parthenon and many ancient sites in Greece and so on. I've I've seen a good bit of the world, and so being denied the opportunity to see more of it is not a huge catastrophe for me. Um, so, so that part has not been, uh, so bad the, 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 the real difficulty for me has been the loss of ability to have dinner with my friends, uh, you know, to see my friends face to face. And this has been uh, very hard. Um, and I think many people are going stir crazy from this. And I think, by the way, this is one of the things that has led to many people, you know, one thing we haven't talked about, but which is important and is a little related to this is the issue of when the pandemic, when does the pandemic end? And the pandemics can have a biological end. We mentioned one of those types of biological ends earlier, the so-called herd immunity threshold. But they also have a social end. And that is basically when the populace says it's over. Uh, you know, when they're either they declare victory arbitrarily or we um, put our heads in the sand, you know, whichever, you, however you want to think about it um, and say, you know, we're just, you know, we're going to put up with this level of mortality or we no longer are willing to take these or any precautions, let's say. So, so I think we are getting a little bit to that. Uh, I think we're reaching a kind of biological end to the pandemic, which is intrinsic to the virus and into human biology. But I also think we're reaching a bit of a social end where people are, are sort of beginning to say, okay, there's, there's this new pathogen in our midst. It imposes extra risk. Um, I've, I've taken prudent measures to prevent to mitigate that risk, you know, I'm vaccinated and so on. Um, but now I'm going to go on with my life. So I think we're reaching that point as well. Anyway, so for me, I don't think there have been any permanent changes in my life, but certainly like every other listener, you know, my life was disrupted uh, by the pandemic. And I mean, and practically, you know, uh, in a way, the pandemic was almost an opportunity for me because, you know, I basically spent my whole life training for this. You know, I've my career has been devoted to this 
advancing the scientific understanding of human social interactions. I study the mathematics and the genetics and the sociology of human social interactions, I study social networks and how things spread through these complicated architectures of that are face-to-face social networks. And I was trained in epidemiology and in medicine. I never thought I would be alive during a once-in-a-century pandemic. I've, I've taught about pandemics for decades. I just, for stupidly, I just somehow never thought that I would happen to be alive during one of them. Uh, but, you know, I was there. I was. And so, you know, for me, I spent the last two years doing research on the pandemic and writing books about it. And we're continuing to do that in the lab. But soon we're going to move on to other topics. Hmm. Thank I I can't wait <laughs> for, the, for us to move <laughs> on. But it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Nicholas. Thank you so much. Thank you, Iona. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me back. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, And I will put links to your book um, in the show notes and to your website and everything else that's relevant. Um, My website is humannaturelab.net, humannaturelab.net, and all of our publications are there and other information of different sorts. Great. I'll make sure that's in the show notes. Um, Have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank you so much. You have been listening to Two for Tea, a podcast hosted by me, Iona Italia, and produced in association with Ario Magazine, with the assistance of sound engineer Justin Ward. Show notes are provided by Daniel Sharp. If you enjoyed this episode, share it widely, leave a review on your favorite podcast app, and please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash two for tea. Have a wonderful week.